Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from SafeAdeen.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, SafeAdeen.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeaddeen.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Standard Podcast. Our guest today is Magat Wad. Magat is a Senegalese entrepreneur who's founded several successful companies, including Skin is Skin, Tiosan, and Adina World Beverages. She's also a libertarian, and she is now working on building new startup cities in Africa. Magat is an inspiring speaker on economic freedom and why economic freedom is the solution to Africa's problems or many of Africa's problems. And her work is heavily influenced by the same kind of libertarian economic ideas that I value when discussing this show. So I'm very happy to have you join us, Magat. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Saif. And um, 
I wanted to wait till the show, still, till we're on air to say this because you're probably going to get read with embarrassment, but I'm a big fan of yours and I've been giving your book to everyone. And the minute I read, I read the Bitcoin standards, all my doubts about the few I was still having about Bitcoin just went over the window. So we, we, my husband and I have been big fans of yours, just so you know. Well, thank you. Thank you. Very glad to hear that. I'm glad you enjoyed it. So uh, tell us, first of all, about your background. So what have you done as an entrepreneur and how did you get started? Yeah. So oftentimes when people ask me that questions, uh, safe, I, I try, I deviate and I take, I, I take them back. The, the story, the, my story is I like to talk about my story from the standpoint of, um, the intellectual journey that I had to go through because of my circumstances. So the way I start the story is just basically an young African girl. I was born in West Africa, in Senegal, West Coast of Africa. And at some point, uh, as soon as I was done breastfeeding, right around age two, my parents did what so many African parents before them had to do and what so many African parents since them continue to have to do, which is emigrate for economic reasons, right? This concept of going somewhere else in order to provide a better life for your family back home. So they left me back home with my grandma to be raised by her while they were testing their luck at this thing called emigrating. It worked for them, uh, thankfully it worked for them. So, but right around age seven, they called for me to be reunited with them. Back then they were in Germany. And so I remember, Seth, that when I arrived in Germany, in the middle of the winter, here is little Magat, who's never left her village, never left her country, let alone her continent, landing in Germany in the middle of the cold and thinking, this question is the first question that I can consciously remember popping in my head, which was, how come they have this and we don't? And, you know, for me, what it was, was just very simply, when back home, grandma says, my God, it's time for shower. I know that by the time she's between the time she says that and the time I get to actually get my shower, I have time to go and play around, go around the block, come back, you know, because she first has to put some water in a, in a pot, put it, uh, you know, get the stove going. And when I say grandma has to get the stove going, doesn't mean she just goes and turns the knobs and everything is ready. Let's go. No, no, no. She has to get the charcoals, put in the coal, fan it off, and then it catches on. Then she puts a pot of water on gets to boil, she takes it off the, the, the stove, puts it in a bucket of water, mixes it with some colder water, and then my cousin is somebody stronger than her, takes it to the shower area, and there, finally, at last, I get to take my shower. But here in Germany, middle of the cold, mom is saying, my God, it's time to get into, to get your shower. I'm like, I am not getting butt naked in this, in this, in this cold climate. Where's the bucket of water? She's like, come on, you silly. We don't need, we, you know, just tap in the shower. And then I tap and I turn the buttons and the water is coming down, everything. I'm like, whoa, wait. So it was just like that for everything. Yeah, well, you, you know, know, the way things are going, uh, uh, Senegal is not uh, behind in that regard. Senegal is ahead of Germany, I think. Uh, it seems, you know, the way things are going with Germany, Germany is going to... <laughs> very good point. We're going to get there very soon, you know. Start using these kind of uh, sustainable yes, green yes. technologies for showering, which is, you know, you start, you have to start the fire inside your house before you take a shower. <laughs> no, Germany is ridiculous. Letting go of a nuclear plants, going back to coal because of stupid um, anti-fossil fuel climate zealots. I'm like, good luck. But you're right. Um, they might have to be doing that very soon as well. So no, so then here I am and I'm just thinking, why is that? And so that question really never left me, never left me. 
And it was one of those defining questions of my life. The reason why actually you're talking, I even get to talk to you today, Safe, about this. And uh, the question eventually became, how come some countries like mine are poor while others like the US, like um, Australia, New Zealand, all of these countries are rich? How come? Along the road, I heard all types of people telling me, because this has been a question that I needed answered. So I've been looking for the answer my whole life. Along the road, I hear some people telling me with very straight face, oh, darling, you know, it's the IQ theory. I don't have to tell you what that is. Others saying, oh, it's just because, you know, you don't have access to enough education. Well, you go say that to the millions of graduates that our universities churn out every single year in Africa and half of us graduates don't find jobs. You just go tell them it's a matter of getting, of getting one more degree and see how that's going to work out for you, you know? The joke in Senegal is the first job of university, you know, a graduate person is to actually be a street seller. So you go say that to that person. And then, you know, I've heard it all. Some people are even going all the way to, oh, if only just you had shoes or it's malnutritional, malnutrition. And I'm thinking, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, that makes no sense. Because if any of this made any sense, how come my parents, the same people, same background, same everything, the minute they get to go to another place, voila, self-actualization. What's going on here? And I don't think in this case, it has to do with these people. So what is the only variable in this equation? It seems to be the place that they get to be in or not. And what is it about this place? And so... I just kept on asking, wondering, and eventually, you know, uh, left Germany, family left Germany after a couple of years, moved to France. After business school in France, I decided that France was too small for my ambitions, and I decided to move to the United States. And when I arrived in the United States, you know, was doing, um, was, was just got involved into the headhunting world uh, in finance. And there I was involved in uh, finding some of the best talent for companies like Google, like Netflix, before they were household name brands, right? And so anyway, here I am looking around and seeing what's going on, doing very well for myself, uh, for someone with, for someone my age, my background, everything, doing extremely well. But eventually at some point I had a I had a crisis of conscience, but the only way I can explain having a crisis of conscience, one day I almost killed myself as I was driving down Highway 1. And basically at that moment, Seth, uh, what happened to me was I just was no longer able to reconcile this uh, life of abundance that I was afforded, even though I worked really hard for it. But people back home were working really hard too. I was not able to reconcile that life of abundance anymore with the life of scarcity that I have left back home. And I was no longer able to push under the rug the horror stories that I grew up with, that I have to put up with to this day of people, some I know, some friends of friends, some family friends who died. Because why? You pack yourself into a little fisherman's boat trying to cross the ocean to go to Europe in this case, in search of what? A job. Just like what my parents had done, except that they were more fortunate to do it under more safe conditions. So right now I have thousands of my most entrepreneurial people, because we know that all the people who leave in search for a better life oftentimes happen to be also very entrepreneurial people, laying, but any person is, is, is a worthy person. All of these thousands of my you know, fellow, fellow, fellow citizens laying at the bottom of the ocean, serving as fish food. When it's not a plane that at some point above England, a body drops because somebody thought it would be a good idea to hide into a landing gear 
or it arrives in Paris, they open the cargo section, a dead frozen body because somebody fought. Somebody didn't know that once the plane gets up, here, up there, uh, things get really freeze to death. So um, these are the stories that I, in a way, grew up with. And that day, driving down, it all caught up with me. My whole life, I, the way I coped with it was to just at some point just brush it off and be like, lady, it's not your fault. <laughs> we all come into the consequence, into the circumstances we come into. You can't solve all the world's problems. Manage yourself and that will be good enough because that's all you can do right now. So as I was able to tell myself that for a long, 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 long time and throwing that under the rug. But that day, it was that, that I just, it was not possible anymore. And this is when things flipped for me. I made a deal with myself and with God that from here on, I want that every single breath that I take, that I'm afforded to take, I want it to go towards the betterment of my continent, period. And then from there, things started to become very different. I went home just to find that this hibiscus drink that I so beloved was disappearing because back home, anybody who isn't anybody wanted to drink soda pop brand from the Western world. Uh, so the people at the bottom of the pyramid drink knockouts of those brands and people at the top of the pyramid drink those Western brands. In the middle, my indigenous, indigenous drink gets squeezed out. So I decided, criticized by creating, that's what entrepreneurs do, do it. Bring, bring them back. And I did it in an entrepreneurial way. So anyway, as I was building that first company, I started to notice things. I started to notice things. What did I notice, for example, back then? In America, it would take me 20 something minutes to fill out my paperwork for the LLC. And then boom, done. Uh, back home in those days, it, it took us close to two years to get anything done. You look at how much money it took in the US, a couple hundred, three hundred dollars maybe to register. Back home, <laughs> thousands of dollars. The labor code, the labor code, the labor, the labor laws are worth 3,700 some pages. Compare that maybe to the 10 pages that a country like Switzerland has. So bottom line is, say, if what I was discovering at that point was, this is interesting. If it, it seems like it is so hard for me to run a business so much harder to run a business in this country called America than in this country called Senegal. But back then I thought, of course it's this way because we're poor. So everything is screwed up. Everything is messed up. We're poor. And eventually things started to flip. Wait, you're poor because you have no money. You have no money because you have no source of income. A source of income for most of us is a job. Where do jobs come from? Businesses, a private sector. Yet you're telling me that it is so much harder to do business in this place than in this other place. Now I'm starting to think, there we go. And then you, when then we want to talk in economist, you know, words, which you totally, you know, you're the economist here. Well, it seems like basically I'm starting to realize now that what I took, what I was living on the ground was completely matching what these indexes were showing. The doing business index of a world, world bank or the Heritage Foundation's Economic Freedom Index was showing. What they were saying was exactly what I was going through. So you mean this is not an anecdote? You mean this is, this is, a, this is systemic? Whoa. And so at that point, to realize that um, Africa is poor because it is the most over-regulated region in the world. That's why we're poor and no other reason. And at that moment, I was like, Whew. 
this makes sense. And it was such a sense of relief. But then from then on, the huge work of uh, really educating myself had to start. And then I started and going into the rabbit hole of really discovering this whole other world of so-called this word, critical word called freedom and liberty. What does it mean? How is it all related? This is what took me to the job, to the work of people like Hayek, Milton Friedman, and comparing all of this to all the nonsense, garbage, Marxist, socialist crap I've been hearing my whole life. And my whole life changed from then on. So I like to tell people that the, I came to the world of libertarianism not for the sake of freedom, for freedom's sake. That really was not what I was looking for. But I came to the libertarianism because in my mind, given what I know now and having compared it to what, to what else I have learned so far and experienced, most importantly experienced, this libertarianism and the and the ideas that it houses are the damnest fighting chance that the global poor has around the world. I want in my lifetime to see this continent called Africa, where 90% of a representative of a black race lives. I want to see it thrive in my lifetime. Or I want to go, I want to die knowing that it's taking the term, a significant turn. And in these ideas lie our hope. That's why I became a libertarian. The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with an ice-colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. Wow. That is, uh, that is some, uh, some speech. I don't know what to say after all of that. Um, I don't even know where to begin. First of all, it's very inspiring to hear that. And yeah, I certainly agree with you. I think it's a, it's, it's a real light bulb moment when you switch from the worldview of the problems of Africa or poor countries in general are that they don't have a proper system. They just don't have the right rules. They don't have the right presidents. They don't have the right bureaucracy. They don't have such good institutions that can govern them effectively. And you realize, nope, 
the problem is that they have these things and they are very good at it and they're just much more efficient at governing governing and achieving what governments do in in a sense um the rest of the world the free world is the place where government is much more dysfunctional in a sense and that it can't intervene with a lot of things so in the US for instance you know for all of its uh, <laughs> for all its attempts at governance and totalitarianism the US government still has to leave you alone in many things you know people do have a large margin of freedom as you said it's much easier to open a business in the US than it is in Africa and you realize then yeah it actually it's it, it's not an issue of we just need better government we need less government people don't need exactly. all these rules they don't need all of this essentially coercive institutions that they're forced to get into and in and therefore these institutions become effectively tyrannical in a sense because people have no choice they have to use them they have no choice and they can't exit them and that's what it ultimately comes down to and that of course is the rationale for the misery industry as i like to call it in my book the fiat standard in that they need you to believe that the issue is that uh, we need to build capacity and have more effective governance and so that requires more and more lending more borrowing and therefore more government bodies and more bureaucracies and more world bank loans and more imf and more and more and more of all of those things which are in a few years going to metastasize into basically cancerous <laughs> growth that suffocates the economy because you have to pay off those debts and you have to deal with all of those new bureaucracies that they keep inventing that's it's very true and i love what you're saying uh, because it is so hard to come across people obviously maybe not in the libertarian world but outside of a libertarian world um it's it's really really uh, frustrating to find that most people don't understand that actually the reason why africa remains poor to this day despite its immense riches all the way from what's under the ground to what's above ground knowing that you know by 2050 one out of every four people walking this earth will be african that currently 70% of the population in sub-saharan africa at least is below the age of 30 when you have countries like japan or italy i think japan last year um we had more dead people than we had babies born you know so when you have all of this riches all of these things that are working for you yet you are still there you know so few people realize The state has been our problem. The state has been our problem during colonialism, of course, but especially since after colonialism, because supposedly by then we were free, but we were not. And so, what has been happening is we just never, we haven't had any voluntary society forever. And so, the state has been in our way. And then people ask, "How did you guys get to this?" And I have to ask myself that question: How did we get to this? Where we always like this, and then but my work had to take me into researching what was going on on this continent before the white man ever set foot. Because you see, for most people, where you know, for most people, we we don't even realize it. But um, for most people, Africans included, the story of Africa and black people starts with slavery. I'm like, no, it didn't. So who were we? What were we doing? And how were we living our lives on this big continent? all of these different um, you know cultures different people what what was going on and then one man's work has really enlightened me the most it's a work of um professor george ayite 
of Fagana, he was a Ghanaian economist, his work really helped me complete the story. And so what uh, George had uncovered was the fact that at the end of so-called um, colonialism, so we're talking late 50s, early 60s, what was going on, you were at the height of uh, this ideological battle between freedom represented on one end by the West and the economic system they were practicing capitalism, facing off with you know the Eastern Bloc and what they were practicing economic speaking was various forms of statism. So around those times, a few years before we, we, we got to the independences, you had some African leaders, um, you know, who were actually the ones who were working for African liberation. We're talking about people like uh, Jomo Kenyatta of Kenya. We're talking about men of Malawi, um, people like that who were basically really thinking about African liberation. People were getting really excited by the fact that Gandhi was making some progress in terms of liberating, you know, India. Here you have the biggest colonized nation in the world about to get rid of the biggest colonizer, England, um, that was about to happen. So there was this, this, this flare, this air of freedom running in, in, in the air. And so what our people did on the Africa side, so for me, there's this very um, clear date that's in my brain, is in 1945 in Manchester, UK, you had this uh, fifth Pan-African you know, um, Congress where by, led by W.E.B. Dubois of the United States, who was very was very Marxist by that time. So he organized this convening of all of these leaders who were going to be there. And this is where they were kind of planning for what liberation would look like and what are we going to go for. And eventually, basically, at that point, it's pretty much decided, look, the West is facing off of the East and the West is the ones who colonized us. Everybody in this fight is looking for influence and they're all looking south. Uh, us, sorry, but the people who colonized us also happens to be our enemy. So the enemy of my enemy will be uh, my friend. So let us go in bed with you, Marxist socialists. And this is how I like to say that this is how, by the end, by the end of colonialism, how all African nations, and I dare to say all African nations, Ethiopia was the one that was never uh, colonized before, but everyone, more or less, we were Marxist socialists. So free African nations... From started with basically statist of various degrees. Um, some people then argue with me. Oh my God, come on! Nigeria was not uh, w w Nigeria was more capitalist. Oh yeah, really? Nigeria still was running on a five-year plan like the Soviets. You know, five-year plan. So still, everything was decided by the state. So you see, the state has been in my way my whole life. We all know what happens to regimes that have bought into Marxist socialist ideologies because it doesn't, it doesn't stop at the ideology level. So our whole, all of our economies are centrally planned to this day. In my country, the price of bread is fixated by the, the country. Yes. Yes, when the peanuts that you grow, you cannot sell it more than a certain amount. It, it is a certain, it has a set price. This, and people don't realize these things. Uh, in Senegal, um, to hire or fire any employee, I have to have the, the, um, the blessing of the, of the state. So say if you and I, I come to you and I'm like, I have this job for you. This is happening to us right now. I have a job for you. you say, yeah, I, I, I need this job. Yeah, I understand that my uh, PhD in German is no good for this uh, lab technician job that you have for me. But, you know, I can do the job. Yes, I think you can do it. And I'm going to pay you X. Well, guess what? We then sign a contract, free copies, you and I. Then I have to take it physically 
physically, because if you email them, they don't answer. Physically to the government agency called Inspection du Travail, Labor Inspection Office. Uh, because we decided to hire people in the in the country in the country area to help with a, a rural exodus to try to help keep people at home so they don't have to leave the countryside and go to the city and leave their families and communities behind because I did not want what happened to me happened to other children so I'm doing my part for that so we're building we're building business meaning uh, jobs and schools because jobs and schools are anchors for a community so uh, but so it means I have to spend half of my day on bad roads traveling to this government agency once we get there I show up at the first hour in the morning, eight o'clock. And before that, I had to hire a CPA, by the way, because remember I told you about that 3,700 something pages of labor laws, which means it is so complicated. You're going to make, make mistakes. And if you make mistakes, it means you're running the risk of being harassed by the government or maybe worse yet sometimes, depends, being put in jail. Nobody wants to take that, that, that risk. So you have to hire an expert, which means more money. And so we arrive 8 a.m. because that's when we're supposed to be there. Nine, nobody. Ten, nobody. Eleven, no one. Finally, they call him. Oh, he's running some errands. Yeah, of course. And then he shows up finally and then barely looks at you, treats you like crap, like you don't even exist. Nothing. But this man, this man is going to be in is going to be the, is the one who has in his hands the right and the power to tell you and I safe if yes, we can work together. He's never been to my company. He doesn't know what the buildings look like. He doesn't know what the job is about or anything, but yet this person will make that decision. And in this case, by the way, he said, we cannot work together. Why? Oh my God, if you give safe this title and he has um, this many years of uh, worthless PhD degree in, uh, in German or whatever it is, then you have to pay him X and that X happens to be 10 times more what the normal going market should be because these were negotiated, you know, salaries with the government. Every single job in Senegal falls under a convention signed between government and that body of work. So, and I don't even want to get you into the taxation. Um, we don't want to go. And if I, if tomorrow, let's say you and I, we worked, oh, and then right now we had a, 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 an employee like that, but you can try to, if you fire them for cause, um, even then they go to what we call les prud'hommes. The prud'homme is this place where a judge is going to decide if yes or no, no respect for the contract that was signed. So this is where, again, for me, I see also the difference between civil law, which we're under, compared to common law, you know, because when the French left, they forced all of their ex-colonies to adopt French civil law type. We're talking about stuff that goes way back. So anyway, um, so if I think by the time I'm speaking like this, you can hear that doing business in, in most African nations is like swimming through freaking molasses. And then you wonder why we're poor. Yeah, I think obviously you guys need more World Bank structural reform programs and more government borrowing. Right? I think that's what will fix this because then you could, you know, improve on the labor law by adding another 3,900 pages that get right to the heart of the thing. And then you'll be able to hire exactly. that worker and maybe you won't have mm -hmm. to pay 10x at that point. Maybe you'll pay 3x and who knows, you know, maybe it'll be uh, <laughs> we'll try that. better. Yeah. No, but more seriously, though, I think my personal theory, which I say in the fiat standard, is that countries that are poor today are basically poor because they got fiat money before they got the steam engine. Mm. I think this is what it comes down to. Mm -hmm. So places where industrialization had arrived by the early 20th century managed to take off because their industrialization got there 
people had accumulated a significant amount of capital, urbanization had taken place to an extent, and the family population growth moderated to a certain point, and that allowed more investment into children, and that allowed increasing living standards, more education. All of those things came from that because you had the ability to accumulate capital under the gold standard at the early stages of industrialization. So you benefited from this enormous increase in the productivity that industrialization allowed, which I think is an enormously important facet of economic development, that once we started using these machines, once we started using coal and oil and gas, every human being had access to a lot more energy that made their life very different. And, you know, the, the example you started with is, is excellent. You know, your costs less energy to make your shower happen because we're only using primitive forms of energy uh, like burning wood. It's a lot more expensive to build an entire power plant that heats things and you know run it on nuclear weapons so that you always have access to hot water in your bathroom in Germany. This this is much more much more productive though. It is more expensive, it requires more capital, but it is more productive. It it allows for a much higher productivity. And so that's that requires a certain amount of capital accumulation. And I think the places that managed to accumulate capital, or even the places that were on the gold standard when they started getting the benefits of industrialization, were able to essentially take off into that cycle of economic growth and increase in human capital and productivity. Whereas on the other hand, the places that basically got fiat money before they got industrialization have just been stuck. And they're stuck because it's not possible for people as individuals to accumulate capital because they can't accumulate savings and they can't hold on to their savings. And so they're constantly losing money. They're constantly getting poorer and there's no ability. And, and of course, the flip side of it. So, you know, I discussed this in depth in the fiat standard. It's, it's, it's a two pronged sword, or if you want, it's, a, it's two blades of the same scissor. On the one hand, you're getting destroyed because you can't save because your money is terrible. And on the other hand, the government has infinite resources to pay somebody like that uh, parasite you mentioned who was standing in the way of you getting your job uh, and hiring people. The, you know, the reason that you can pay people like that is because you have a money printer or you have uh, access to government-controlled money one way or the other, and that allows these governments to continue to uh, remain inefficient and not answer to the market. And so in these places... We're still, I mean, for in my mind, this is just completely insane that we're in 2020 and not everybody in the world has electricity because it's just such a trivial thing to make happen. It's, it's really insane that we're in 2020, 100 years after the invention of electricity, and there are still people in the world who can't get it. It's insane because it's a very simple thing to build. And you just need to accumulate a little bit of capital to be able to afford it. And if you can't accumulate it, if you can't get 24-hour electricity, it's because somebody nothing is possible. Yeah, it's some somebody is stopping you from doing it. Like any human being would be able to pay somebody and develop this, but there is something that is stopping you from doing it. And in the West today, you know, the reason the grids are falling apart is because of the insane uh, climate hysteria. But in the developing world, it's because they never managed to get um, enough capital accumulated. And I think this has been the result of fiat money. In the case of Senegal, obviously, you, you have the CFA, and we've discussed the CFA on the show here before. Yeah, so on the one hand, you know, your currency is getting destroyed, so your family can't save. And then on the other hand, that money is being destroyed and it is benefiting the French government. And then the French government is therefore able to spend a lot of money on Senegal and to remake Senegal in its image. You know, the, mm -hmm. the French bureaucracy is 
not working in France, obviously, but you know, it's not stopping them from trying to export it everywhere. And look how that's working out. Yep. No, absolutely. And this is, this is why the hope for me lies in um, the, the startup cities, right? The, this concept of startup cities. I, you know, we're not going to change all 54 nations uh, on the continent uh, anytime soon or 55, depending on how you count. But my thing is, if we get one place to do the right thing, then maybe, we, maybe we, all of us get to escape this because then it's just through imitation. So I know that um, for many people, like people who don't understand or have been criticizing the startup cities, they think, oh, you know, we just go to these countries and we rely on the fact that, you know, they're struggling or whatever, which is true, they're struggling. But in my case, what I'm looking at is, okay, we have been involved. I, I um, One of the hats that I wear is as the director of the Center for African Prosperity of the Atlas Network. I don't know if you know the Atlas Network, but it's the largest organization in the world of, um, you know, free market think tanks. And so my job is to kind of, you know, look after the ones that we have on the continent in Africa. And so there, what our partners are doing for most of them is they're working on reforms, which is all great. And some of them are having really amazing results. An organization like Imani over in Ghana, I always want to give them kudos, but just amazing. Piecemeal legislation, while a really worthy endeavor, I feel that we also need to speed up the process and we need to try and be a little bit more radical because piecemeal legislation takes forever. It's just a long process. And by the time you're done cleaning up some laws on this side, 10, 10 more were, you know, passed over here. It just becomes cumbersome. So what some people are doing, are doing, and I'm just saying it for the sake of your, of your listeners in case they have lit, heard little of it or I'm sh- or maybe Seth, you've been talking about it a long time and I shouldn't go into the details of any of this stuff or no, uh, just ahead. for the sake of listeners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so basically this concept of startup cities, uh, the way it kind of came about, why people call it that way. Some people, you will hear them call it charter cities, other call it free cities. I like to call them startup cities, but basically is to think of uh, a piece of land as your computer and to think about the set of laws, about the law and governance as your operating system. And we all know that depending on which operating system one uses, one gets with a very different outcome. And so in our situation, it is very clear by now that Africa is poor because it's a zone for poverty. And so to think about um, the legal, about the legal system as almost like technology, right? And so in this case, it's going to these nations where everybody is entrenched. Like for example, if I wanted to go to Senegal today and say, this notary business is nonsense, meaning that every time you have to legally start a business, you have to go to the notaire. The, not- the notaire, the notary, is not what think- people think about in, you know, in, in, in the US where not- a notary is like where you go, they sign something, you know, it's like a, some clerk somewhere signs like a little piece of paper. By now it's almost free. Uh, no, it's not that. It's closer to what the lawyer is than anything else in our nations in French law. And so you can imagine it costs money, it takes time, things have to be uh, published in the official journal, all of that crap. So if today I wanted to show up and say, well, we need to yank all of those not- all of these notaires, all of these notaries, we need to go. Guess what I'm gonna have on my back? All the notaries are gonna be on my back and you know they're gonna defend their turf with everything that it's, that it's worth. You know that the inspection of labor and all of these unions that have been created from everywhere and all the power that they have, they're not gonna see, they're not gonna concede one inch of it. So I have a choice. I spend my time fighting all of these vested and very entrenched interests and they're from everywhere, including the opposition parties, 
which we know opposition is just there to oppose. So they'll oppose anything, even if it's good for the country, as long as it's something that, you know, the current person sitting is promoting, I got to be against it, of course. So when you have all of these forces that you have to fight, then one is thinking, okay, let me not go head to head with all of these people. But what could happen if I can find one piece of land somewhere in this country where city size, ideally, where then this um, city would have its own law on governance, especially as it relates to business. And then therefore proceed to provide this piece of land with the best in-class business climate, right? And so that's what we're working on. We have found such a nation in uh, West Africa that I can't cite now. And the plan there, and this is going to be even more radical, because here you're talking about having this nation go, this place go from being a under civil law to migrate to something, you know, like common law. But the way we're doing ours, because I'm a proud African, I want to make sure that we're not copying, pasting anything from anywhere else. We're taking the best practices from everywhere, including practices from our forefathers. When I say forefathers, I'm thinking about the people who came before us, before slavery time, because by now, through the job of uh, people like George Aite and now other scholars, we know that those Africans were, for the most part, free marketeers. They were free marketeers. We know that now. Okay? So me going back to those roots is not me necessarily copying anything so-called Western. Although if it was strictly Western, I still would have done it because like the Chinese, the people who developed China, you know, they said at some point, I don't remember his name, but he, somebody was saying, I don't care if um, the cows is, uh, if, the, if the mouse is uh, red or black, as long as the cat catches mice. That's all I care about. Right? So my point is here, not only um, these ideas are the best in the world for prosperity building, but they also happen to be things that my forefathers were very much in line with before the colonizers settled and brought with them the crap that's called Marxist socialism. Um, yeah. So in any case, here then what you see is creating these zones where uh, the idea is to marry the best of common law with the best of uh, whatever traditional, the best of a traditional African law that happens to be in that area, you know, kind of decided by and with the people. So this is what we've been working on. And that's really, for me, uh, one of our greatest hopes, because there then we get to leapfrog everything. And ideally in zones like that, then we have empowered on Bitcoin for all the reasons, you know, that you cite on uh, the Bitcoin standard. So for me, this is just how ideally we get to leapfrog all of this crap. And then I'm a firm, I'm in a way a Kritarchy type person that then gets us into a whole nother conversation maybe, but uh, I am very interested in going back to that time. Just like I'm, I'm, I'm no longer looking at what Africa what has been since slavery and to present day. I have been going back to who my people were before those times. And you go back and you look at what was happening in Somalia when you look at, the, I don't know if you saw this book, but uh, The Law of the Somalis, right? And showing how basically you had a very decentralized system of um, governance, you know, the rule, Kritarki, the rule of the judges, right? And a court forms only when there is something to judge and every crime has a price. If you can't pay the price, then your clan members and beyond the clan, depending on which level, if people have, a, you know, who has the money or not, then, you know, everybody's kind of more or less involved, you have these communities. So the tribes were very, 
you know, separate, uh, but maintaining the peace for the most part. And uh, things were doing just fine until, you know, UN, US, especially in the case of Somalia, showed up and said, you guys, you need to have a state. And they're like, wait. And so then you had the warlords, you know, who started saying, well, we're going to have to fight for this. So everybody now has to fight because if power is going to be centralized, you better be smart and make sure you control it. Otherwise, your people might be taken out. So we went from having tribes, which is not a dirty word, to having tribalism. And now we have this crap. So me, I'm promoting this going back to recreating as many of these, um, you know, little nation states as we can. Even when I look at all the fights on the continent to this day because of these arbitrary borders that we have, you're forcing people who were not living together before, have nothing to do with each other by their standards. You're forcing them to live together because you said, this is how it's going to be. I mean, short of going for secession, which is a whole other heavy, um, you know, concept, maybe the best way for us will be today. And this is where I'm a very weird Pan-Africanist because I am a Pan-Africanist. I want what the Pan-Africans want in the sense of having a strong power for Africa, but I don't think it's going to happen by centralizing Africa as most Pan-Africans wants to do it. Me, I'm like, no, we do, the, we go the other way. We maintain, you know, free trade and the free movements of people, goods, services, and ideas across the continent. But beyond that, let us all create a thousand nation blooms. So if you want to create a Yoruba, you know, um, utopia land, go for it. One other wants to create an Igbo one, go for it. I feel that, you know, peace will be preserved only if people are allowed to have voluntary societies. And so I'm going to go radical on this, just like on this, on the free cities, when I'm done with that, uh, my book that's coming up in uh, late September is going to be about the startup cities and how, for me, that's the hope for Africa and kind of walk people through all of this history of how we got to where we are and most importantly, how do we get out of it? But then beyond next, next, I'm going to be tackling this whole issue of democracy as we know it, winner takes all, which is terrible. I feel like once again, our forefathers were onto something. Uh, was it ideal back then? No, because we still have to revise critarchy for better rights for minorities. But I do think there is a very, very strong kernel there. And I'm very interested in actually how we can revive that, you know, obviously 21st century style with everything that we know now. Yeah, no, this is very inspiring. And I think uh, I, I agree with you. I, uh, I agree with you entirely. I think one thing I also say in the fiat standard is... Uh, Western colonialism only really got started, only really picked up steam with anti-colonialism. Like that was the real thing. Before anti-colonialism, Western colonialism was relatively benign compared to what came after. Anti-colonialism really has been the real colonialism. And it's it's such an incredible scam that these, really the, the trash of Europe in, intellectually, essentially, you know, garbage like Karl Marx and his likes, uh, their ideas are somehow assumed to be the way for Africans to rise up against uh, Europeans, and it's insane. He's he's he. It, it is the trash of a European thinking. It's it, he's not just a European who's not an African. It's like the worst of the worst of European. He was a barely literate idiot who couldn't really write anything. He didn't understand anything about economics, and yet he's presented as if he is 
the salvation of Africans. And essentially, of course, it's, it's the ruling regimes in Africa that benefit mm -hmm. from this because his insane ideas give them more power. And of course, his insane ideas are extremely adaptable to fiat financing and to being essentially a puppet regime of the IMF and the World Bank and European nations that are funding nations and so on. You know, you need the government. And so these, you know, the European governments were, of course, the ones that were financing all of those things. Like at the end of the day, you go to an African university today and their economics department is primarily made up of <laughs> Marxist garbage. It's, it's and it's depressing. And, and and where did they get that from? Like it's it's a lot of Western financing. And uh, some of it was Soviet, which is also not African. You know, it's also presented as if, yeah. if it's Soviet that somehow it's 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 obviously uh, just present it, it, people seem to think that it's, it just becomes African and indigenous and legitimate and it's for your own good. And of course it isn't. Mm -hmm. And if you think about, if you think colonialism is bad, anti-colonialism and fiat governments that were installed under the pretext of fighting colonialism have been much worse on every possible conceivable metric in every way imaginable. They have just destroyed society's ability to accumulate capital. And, and, and the point that you mentioned was, which is really very strong is that you know, let's bring in this centralized state and bring all of these tribes that don't have anything to do together, except the fact that when you look at the map from London or from Paris, it looks like it's one area and you can't really tell that there's, you know, there's a big giant mountain in the middle. So those people don't even speak the same language. Um, or, you know, it looks like it's a very big area. Let's cut it up. But really, you're cutting up the same people. And of course, you have nomadic people that move around and now can't move around as yes, much. Grace. Yeah, all of that stuff. You can't see it when you're sitting in Paris or in London. So you just cut it up and you say, you know, we'll just give them a government like the one that we have. And of course, these people are government uh, employees generally. They are statists. So their conception of what makes France or uh, England developed is completely warped because they think people like them made their countries when in reality it was workshop people you know it was people who come up, came right. up with engines and came up with all of these amazing technologies and most of these people had nothing to do with the bureaucracy or with the government the government was just the parasite that took mm -hmm. taxes from them and it, and and in the case of england in particular i think there's a very strong case to be made the reason england had the industrial revolution rather than than other places in europe is because the government in england left people alone the most common yeah yeah common they law. had common law you had a competitive judiciary system yeah. you had a very tiny yeah. bureaucracy mm -hmm. government had low taxes and it didn't have a giant bureaucracy the, 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 there was no ministry of industry that brought about the industrial revolution it wasn't <laughs> some minister in some government in london who decided hey you know what we should do we know it would be neat if we move from being an agricultural society to being an industrial society and to do that we need to do this five-year plan where we first invent the steam engine and then we invent the internal combustion engine and then we, it didn't happen that way it took hundreds of years of workshop workers yeah an emergent order. tinkering and, and you know you making new and better pumps and then suddenly they tinker with them and then you switch the pump around and you got an engine and then you keep making the engine better and then suddenly you have a living standard where every person is able to command a hundred times as much energy as they did pre-industrially and that all is impossible to do in places that got fiat before they got the, the the engine because you just can't get on that ladder you can't accumulate enough capital as long as your money is designed to rob you 
and your government has infinite resources. That's 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 the way that I see it. But yeah, and you mentioned you mentioned also George Aiti, which I think is uh, who's a great economist. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away last year. I used to follow him yes, on Twitter, but uh, he's he's mm-hmm. an excellent economist and he's very astute. I read I remember reading him and thinking, yeah, that's that that makes a lot of sense. It's a very few people, unfortunately. So many people write about Africa. Very few people will point the finger where it belongs, which is this is just central planning. These are government uh, agencies that have the calculation problem that Mises speaks about, and you can't expect them to do any better. No, it's funny because uh, I don't know if uh, you remember that in the in uh, one of uh, George's books, um, Safe, but he I don't know if exactly the name of it, but he was saying these people, the government. Even if uh, you told them that they needed deregulation, um, then they would create a minister of uh, deregulation, a ministry of deregulation. <laughs> you know, he was joking. <laughs> just, you know, it's just the whole thing is I laugh so I don't cry. But the whole thing is just a tragedy. It's a tragedy of the highest, um, you know, level. It is. It's it's sad that we can laugh about it, unfortunately, because it's normalized and so we become just immune to it. But yeah, it is yeah. massively tragic. It's so tragic. Yeah. And say, for, by the way, just uh, to throw another one at uh, the so-called civilizers, you know, they came and they had to civilize us Africans. And that's another thing. Where even when you look at women today and the role of women, you know, they like to say, oh, you know, African... African women are supposedly like these subdued people. I'm like, you don't know the real African women. But anyway, even there, you go back to the ways of a fourth of a people who came before slavery and such and look at what was being practiced. It's when these people, the colonizers showed up and they told us that to be civilized is the men in front, the women in the back. <laughs> even that is not how traditionally we've been doing things. You know, when people think about the Amazons, you think about maybe um, these maybe beautiful women from uh, somewhere in uh, Latin America, or whatever. The Amazons are the women who were the all women's army protecting the king, for example, in the Dao- of the Daomi kingdom, which is today's Benin. Uh, so when you think about that, that way back in the days, this is how and who we were, like, do you really um, think that a weak woman is, you know, like an all-female army defending the king? Do you think uh, that does does that compute? So for whatever it is worth, I'm just throwing it out there because that's another one that seriously pisses me off about some of uh, the civilizational imports that we got from the West that is, in fact, so backwards when you think of it. Yeah, absolutely. It's very inspiring to hear you talk about this. Very few people will mention this. I don't know if how familiar you are with his ideas, but your ideas in Africa are similar to what uh, Hoppe says on Europe. Like he says, what Europe needs is a thousand Liechtensteins. Um, Europe needs to be broken up. The problem is the EU and the problem is the giant German state and the trend towards centralization has been the catastrophe of Europe. It's all of these very strong states that are going to war with each other and going to war with the rest of the world and doing all kinds of nasty things. And all of that is because of centralization. And of course, you know, a big driver in centralization is the money, the centralization of money. You had to, with gold and with fiat, you had to, in order to make the system work, you had to have everything run from one central location that kept the main balances and kept the, you know, whether it's the big pile of gold or the big database of who owns how much fiat coins, it had to be centralized. And then that just became the big giant bounty at the end of the political process, which completely distorts it, whether it's in Europe or in Africa, rather than money being distributed, therefore politics being limited in its power because it's ultimately to an extent 
voluntary because people uh, find it, well, maybe not necessarily voluntary, but it's hard for the, as long as money is decentralized, it's hard for the kings. At least you have a say. Yeah, it's hard for the king to get money out of his subjects unconditionally on demand whenever he wants to. It's much more complicated than that. But so therefore, he needs some kind of legitimacy. He needs to be some kind of um, good king in a way or the other. And he can't spend a lot of money doing insane bullshit. Now, when you centralize the money, it becomes extremely lucrative. Now you can, if you just win (laughs) the stupid popularity contest, uh, you kiss a bunch of babies and uh, talk about uh, emotional things and manipulate people into thinking that you're a good guy. And then you get to have everybody's money (laughs) at your disposal. Yes. Like it's, I can't think of a more. And print more out of nowhere. Absolutely. Also. I can't think of a yeah. more destructive recipe for a society. Like this is the equivalent of getting a 13-year-old and just spending every morning teaching them how to do drugs all day and giving them endless money and saying, "Hey, let's see how this is going to work out." And just I mean, you're you're you the incentives are so skewed because there's a big pot of money that you get to control if you if you're in charge. And politics now becomes extremely much more, extremely aggressive because, as you said, you know, there's it's winner take all, and if you're not the winner, then you lose everything. And so, if you know that you are going to lose everything if you don't win, then you're going to go to very desperate lengths to win, and that's where you see the conflict just develop into such brutal levels. Because, I mean, some people think it's because of the technologies, because of the weapons that we have. Maybe, but you know, like uh, the Rwandan genocide was mostly carried out with machetes. Uh, We've always had the technical capability of mass murder. Um, In fact, I would say that advanced weapons should reduce bloodshed. You would expect them to reduce bloodshed because they make it more obvious quicker who's going to be able to win because you know you get such a much larger level of variation in the effectiveness of the weapons because the weapons become so much more you know you go from gun to nuclear weapon there's a big gap and then it becomes very obvious who's got the advantage and so that would lead to conflict not lasting long i think the difference is not so much in the weapons i think the difference is in the stakes when you had decentralized societies, as you mentioned, with tribal systems, there was little scope for conflict. I mean, obviously, there was conflict. Obviously, it was not ideal. Like it, humans are not angels. Bad things will happen. But when the conflict becomes inevitable is when you make it so that, hey, if your tribe has a, more than us and you get more votes than us, you get to do with us whatever you want. But if our tribe get more votes then we get to do to you whatever we want. Let's play democracy. (laughs) And then... Yeah, but that's a recipe disaster. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and then, of course, you know, that idea, of course, it's it's Western propaganda, which hasn't worked out well in the West, but the people who carry this to Africa, they believe it. And so when they see this misfunction or malfunctioning in Africa, they think the answer, obviously, is more democracy. And they can't get to admit that the answer lies in all of these... uh, things that are not expensive, that don't involve let's build a new bureaucracy and borrow another $3 billion because their job depends on borrowing. And so the World Bank is not going to come, uh, is not going to ever come up with a conclusion and say, you know, what you should do is stop borrowing and just dismantle your public sector and stop doing reforms and stop uh, trying to do all of these attempts of regulating your economy and just basically 
don't in don't don't put your citizens in a lifetime of debt slavery. If you were to do that, I think you'd do a lot better for these countries. But that doesn't pay the bills of the World Bank. That's not how you get to work in the misery industry, what I call the misery industry and the fiat standard. And that's that's what it comes down to. There is a you have a vested interest because of the way that the fiat monetary system works, because of these institutions, they just need you to borrow. And so you have to always be borrowing. And then since you're borrowing, you have to always have a government that has a lot of money and a lot of power. And then you you know you go fight and figure out how you're going to sort this out. <laughs> Yes, that's exactly how it how it is, and you know, um, this is. I, I want to take this opportunity because this 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 conversation very much leads, lends itself to it. But you know, to send a really strong message to my fellow Pan Africanist friends, who they who for the most part have drunken the Marxist socialist Kool Aid to this day. I mean, we have here a continuation, you know, of um, some of the folks who were at, we have a continuation of the ideas that were being um, thrown around during that Pan-African Congress, or I should say since that Pan-African Congress, African liberators making, basically going and embracing Marxist socialist ideas. So today, some of the most vocal people on the, um, we want Africa to win side, and they like usually call themselves a Pan-Africanist, are also people who have drunken bad Kool-Aid. And for me, I'm like, guys, I think we want the same thing. If we want a thriving Africa, if we want an Africa, in, if we want a world in which black people finally become recognized uh, co-creators, global co-creators of prosperity and innovation in the world, if we want to get to that level, you are going to have to let go of your centralization uh, ideology. It just doesn't work. And instead, let us go back and try to see what Somalia has done right before. And then, of course, they go laugh, laughing. But I'm just like, think about it, um, say, for a second here. The power of these small nations, whether it's Switzerland, whether it's Holland, what do they all have in common? I mean, Holland, this tiny, this tiny ass country basically is the second largest uh, exporter of agricultural products after the United States. Right. The producers of one of the, one of the key, um, you know, tech chips that we need in uh, technology to make many things run. I'm um, coming out of this tiny country, but how did they get there? Yeah. The free markets and uh, small government. It can be done. So the, 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 the power in power is not in how, how big the size, but it's more decentralization, like we talked about before. And so I, I guess here, I'm just trying to send a strong, strong, strong message to that part of our constituents to really rethink there as well, because this is really, we're wasting precious time, uh, precious time we're wasting. So I just, yeah, I, I wanted to bring that up. And then, you know, um, there's something else I wanted to say about fiat currency. My biggest problem with the fiat currency as we know it, on in addition to everything else we've talked about and that you described so well in your book, at least in the in the Bitcoin standard, I, I have to, I'm still, um, I still need to read your fiat um, standard, which I cannot wait. And then I think there's another one. And principles of economics. Now I just yeah, got yeah, it printed. Yeah, so, so I can't know, wait. I'm you totally need to gonna pick it up. Books. You need to pick it up. I'm going to, I'm going to get them. And you know, with your books, what I do is I also get multiple more so I can offer everybody who starts fight. I'm just like, you read this book first and then we talk, but I'm not going to argue with you before you have read the book. So that's how I've been doing it. And you've been helping me ha with a lot of uh, arguments. So anyway, um, my biggest, my biggest issue with a fiat currency safe is 
in addition to everything we talked about, how many wars it has gotten us into and also how long we have stayed in those wars. To me, this is of the most highest moral case. And that's my disgust with a fiat currency. That's pretty much the root of my disgust with it. When I understood how the fiat currency is promoting wars, not only how many wars we get into, but also how long we stay into, into these wars, I, I can't with a straight face support um, fiat currency any longer. I, 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 just, I just can't. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, this is, of course, a very important point about this, which, you know, the, the, the fans of the fiat currency are always out there complaining about how much, how much energy Bitcoin burns. <laughs> and somehow, for them, that's more objectionable. Yeah, no, burning oil and coal and basically the scum of the earth, the literal scum of the earth, that's what oil is. Burning that is more objectionable to them than the fiat currency, which burns living human beings. I mean, that's what this currency achieves. It's, it allows governments to be essentially omnipotent. As long as the currency works, then the government can spend as much money as it wants. And so therefore, it can get into wars and not have to worry too much about the issue of financing, unlike what happened earlier on the gold standard, where you know when you ran out of money, you ran out of money. That's it. There was nothing else that you could do. And so you had to be a lot more careful with how you spent your money. And of course, you know, the other aspect of it is, I think another, another important point is the, the bonds and the borrowing. War is a great way to get people to believe you're in an emergency and therefore you need to support the government and buy bonds. And that is very good for government. And so governments are going to like the idea of getting into war. And it's just such a perverse incentive that fiat money allows simply because it centralizes money in the hands of those who have power. And it's, it's terrible uh, from an engineering perspective. You know, when I, when I talk about Bitcoin, for me, I think I prefer to talk about the economics because that's the practical thing. In other words, you know, the world has enough people going out there and trying to appeal to people's morality and to try and explain and do this because then the world will be a better place. People might listen, they might try it, but really what gets people to really change is appealing to their self-interest. And that's why I like to spend my time talking about number go up technology in Bitcoin, because that's a much more effective way of uh, getting people on board than continuing to tell them, hey, you know, come on board because then fewer people are going to die and we're going to have less war and less peace. That seems ridiculous to some. It seems uh, offensive because they don't want to think about the idea that their stupid monetary system is uh, behind so much death. And it's kind of counterproductive. Whereas with Bitcoin, <laughs> I, you know, uh, when you focus on the economics of Bitcoin, you're getting people to move away from the fiat system much more effectively. And that's what matters. And that's why for me, you know, perhaps I, 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 I spoke about it in the fiat standard and the Bitcoin standard, but like I, I don't speak about it as much as I uh, ideally would like to because i just think it's better to be practical uh, you know you want you you we want to win we don't want to moan we want to kill fiat we don't want to tell people we don't want to convince people how bad it is we just want to move beyond it and the way to move beyond it is to build something better and to just show people look we have number go up whereas fiat is number go down yeah and as a bonus <laughs> we're going to we save people yeah, we're going to basically save human civilization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, really, whatever it takes. Um, so I'm just very, um, 
Yeah, I think the book was your book was so brilliantly done. So um, thank you, thank you, thank you. So tell me more about what you guys are planning to do with this uh, startup cities. You said you have a country, but you don't want to tell us. So I respect that. But uh, what kind of arrangements are you looking at in terms of are you getting your own territory, or is it going to be just a uh, a way of operating? like within cities or? Uh... Yeah, no. Um, so uh, an area of land that's um, non-occupied, so nobody lives there. So no issues with, um, or very small amount of people, but everything, you know, will be worked out properly with um, the uh, people who are there, the few who are there. And uh, based on that, um, you know, the designing of the law of um, the law that's and the law and governance that's going to govern this, this place. And again, uh, people just need to think about Primarily business laws, commercial laws. We're not, you know, it's not like you're touching uh, family, you're not touching anything that could make, you know, you're not touching the sovereignty of a nation, for example, like immigration laws, things like that, security, you're not really going anywhere there. Um, so then, you know, just got, get on designing uh, one of the best, um, wor- most world-class business climate, uh, you know, places in the world, business environments in the world. And then from there, the idea uh, for these cities of ours is very much for up to 90% of the people working in it to be um, Africans, people from the area. So the way we look at this is primarily giving people a chance to try before they buy. I liked how Paul Romer, who had you know uh, talked about the charter cities, uh, that's one thing I, I love how he, the, the analogy he gives there. This is a chance to giving um, this a country and maybe really anywhere, anyone around it, a chance to try before they buy. And I, we also love the voluntary association nature of it. No one is forcing you to go into this place. Uh, but if when you go in, the rules are very clear, which is something, again, that we're lacking in so many of these places because it's like rules upon rules upon rules and no one knows de facto anymore what goes on. And as you know, there's nothing worse for investment than gray areas in terms of, you know. So, so yeah, so that's kind of what we're doing with cities. And uh, obviously, the one we're doing here is going to be optimized for African entrepreneurs to be able to enterprise because really for me, the reason why I'm doing this is I'm trying to find a way to offer African entrepreneurs in Africa, uh, in their respective nations, in this nation, giving them a chance to escape the bad law and governance that they inherited from way back when. Without challenging, like I said again, uh, the current status quo, again, goes back to what you were saying. We can criticize something all we want. At some point, the best way, the best form of criticism is through creation. So let's create an alternative in this case, something totally voluntary association-based and let the magic happen. It has worked anywhere it's been tried before. Talent and uh, capital tends to follow uh, where it has the most um, favorable environment for it. So here, this is our attempt to literally provide African entrepreneurs in Africa with the best business environment that exists in the world and this way, we don't have to leave our nations anymore and go and make other places more prosperous and leave our, pla- leave our continent behind. So this is really the attempt we're making here. How far will we, will we be able to go in terms of building really this world class? Because obviously there's going to be some little fights happening, you know. For example, I know very few people realize the weight of something called OADA. OADA is the best, it's a, it's a French acronym, but basically the best way to, to say what it is, it's uh, the harmonization authority 
uh, organization where you had a bunch of these uh, West African countries, especially Francophone countries, who came together under the under the they tr basically this, they were trying to do what we're trying with this, to do with the startup city, but just more central in a more centralized way, but um, really has not provided what it was supposed to provide. If anything, it has just kept on putting more and more and more, you know, uh, rules and regulations on businesses doing business in the area, especially within this, the, especially within the scope of uh, the field of uh, banking and finance. We have some of the most overregulated banking and finance industries in the world in these special zones that are under the OADA per se. And so I am sure that there's going to be some pretty interesting negotiations that are going to have to happen. Are we going to need maybe to sign some different treaties with um, international treaties? Because you know how international treaties work. The last one that you signed, it basically takes precedent over, you know, any even the laws of um, the, at the national level. So the only way to go around that is maybe to sign other treaty, other, you know, treaties. So to then it becomes a new president. So it's that part is quite complicated. Um, this is why I have so much respect for the legal teams involved in these startup cities. But the good news here is for us, for me, but the most important thing is the vision with which we're going in. And the vision with which you're going in, I'm not interested in creating a, a city that's going to be utopia land for libertarians per se. Okay. If, if, that's not what I'm interested in. I'm not interested in creating a surrogate land for maybe the Chinese or anybody else to come through and kind of use us as a, again, surrogate, as a surrogacy land. I'm not interested in any of that. I want for our wealth and value creators, AKA entrepreneurs, African entrepreneurs, I want for them to get a chance to escape the circumstances that I described earlier about all the hoops that I have to jump through as an African entrepreneur trying to do business on the continent. I want them to not have to deal through that, with that anymore. It's hard enough to be an entrepreneur, to start and run a business. Why add all of these, uh, you know, extra hurdles that absolutely make no sense and are not called for. So these zones are primarily created for them. I want the world to see what we're capable of doing once we finally remove these chains that no one has been seen but are very much there. So the goal is for that to happen, you know, many African entrepreneurs to start enterprising, not have to leave anymore, and also many, 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 many of the jobs go to Africans so that they don't have to put themselves into boats and try to cross over to Europe for a job anymore and die, uh, so that no more bodies drop from, you know, planes and that we don't have Georgia Meloni of uh, Italy or Viktor Orban of Hungary or maybe Marine Le Pen soon in France or whatever disrespect us with the way these people look at us and talk about us. They, they, call, us, they call us swarms, swarms of immigrants coming from Africa. You know, all of this has to stop. The only way it's going to stop is if we can make it for our value and wealth creators to be able to create straight from home. And if other people from around the world want to come and join us on that journey, great. But still, this will be done according to our own vision of what also prosperity looks like. So this is maybe where I depart a little bit from others in this movement. I am not interested in building a utopia land for libertarians. If they want something, if this is, I don't want it to be a place where, you know, I, again, I, I want our people to be able to also partake into 
whatever we're going to be creating over there. So it is created from the bottom, from the beginning, it's created with that goal in mind. Yeah. So I'm very, I'm, I'm very excited at, um, that's what I call a bright future for Africa. And, um, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. That's the vision and the world I live in in my head. And I know it's going to happen in my lifetime. And, um, even if it, even if I don't see the final result of it, I want to make sure that we have shifted the boat in a direction that I know it's now on its way. This continent is on its way and the world has, the world has no idea what's coming. And that's, that's, that's the world I live in. That's excellent. So like when you say, I, I mean, you want to make the best uh, business environment in the world, what do you have in mind in terms of how you're going to bring that about? Are you looking to, for instance, copying Dubai or Hong Kong's uh, code or starting from scratch or um, what are you thinking? No, that's a very good question. So the best way to think about our base premises is to think about what Botswana has done, you know, what Kama has done. Um, here you had a king. Um, he was um, he was a um, a king from Botswana originally, but uh, was trained in uh, Britain, right? So he totally understood common law and all of that good stuff, and then went back home to uh, basically. Um, so here was this king who very much aligned with his um, Botswanian, you know, traditional uh, traditions and understood the power of um, common law and then proceeded to create a marriage between the best of both sides. So the, ours is going to be more along those lines. So the premise is going to be very much that a marriage between the best of, um, of the best of common law, in this case, British common law, but together with the best of um, this particular place, uh, African traditions. So just coming up with a mixture like that. And then beyond that, you know, obviously best practices. And in some places, we're going to have to completely, you know, it, depending on, there's going to be some elements where we are going to create together with the host country, something that maybe has not been done anywhere else before. And we reserve ourselves that right. And when I say we, it's we with, um, you know, the leadership of this country. Obviously, this president really believes in this, totally has, I think, because this takes, um, let me say the word balls to do this. And to when you are in a region where all, none of these presidents dares to do anything because they're afraid of, on one side, what the French are going to do, to, might do to them, openly or not, and also what the IMF slash World Bank might do to them, openly or not. You know what I mean? So, but this person to have a vision and the understanding, it it, it does help that this person really understands business to 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 know that this is this is a big problem. So, the, what we're trying to do is that it's going to be um, a, a marriage between common law as well as this particular African tradition. So, as you know, there are many African traditions and cultures. So, but in this particular place, we'll look at the very best of um, what can be taken out of a traditional, uh, of a tradition on, on the traditional side, and then mix it to the um, common law. Then um, we obviously going to be very strong on. Uh, trying not to, you know, like some of these other cities, startup cities, where they, some of the things that they have done, they're also learning their lessons where at first, maybe some of, um, especially in, on the Honduras side, some of the things that they've done, for example, was, you know, more or less try to think about some of the clauses in the legislation, but in retrospect, now they realize things should have been left a little bit more loose on some things so that there is room for 
um, change and you know being able to turn around. So here, I think we're definitely going to be benefiting from 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 an insight like that. But again, it goes back to what you were saying. Every single one of these that's going to be done is going to be better than the last one that was done. And so here, we're definitely right there, looking at what all of these guys have been doing around the world, Dubai including and all and others. And looking at what worked, what didn't work, what could be done better, and what we should try to um, steer clear from, and all of that good stuff. So um, here, I think it's going more also trying to, instead of have certain laws, you know, be so set in law, so set in stone, rather, you know, rely on the power of contracts and kind of, instead of saying the law is going to be X, for example, I, I don't know, I'm just making it up, especially when it comes to liability laws and such, not try not to have them sit in the law part, but try to have those specificities designed at the contract level. You see what I'm saying? So just a lot of these things that uh, we're starting, we you know we have to put into place and, uh, and, and look at, but um, yeah, so this is, this is, these are the, the way this, at least this one city we're working on is designed with, we have that in mind. And of course, you know, there is an aspect related to technology, but for us, we also want a place where um, some good agribusiness can be done as well. Uh, a place where many African brands can be born from, because again, uh, we want to be known as global co-creators. And uh, I do think it's important for Africa's image uh, to have really strong, powerful consumer brands that are authentically African, whatever that means, depending on on, on each, you know, African region or sector. So there's going to be a strong emphasis on that, on African, local African entrepreneurs who we are going to try to give them the best environment possible for them to be the, the brands that people will be using in the future. I, we envision them to be born in this city, you know? Nice. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a daunting challenge. It's it's not an easy thing, and I commend you for your uh, you know the the bravery to take this on because um, there are no easy answers to those questions. You know, if you wanted to go and just copy somewhere else where something works, you know, you could look at Dubai and just copy Dubai's laws. Obviously, that's just not going to work. And on the other hand, you can't just uh, build something out of scratch. And so, trying to marry between what is existing and the and the country's laws and the things that you must observe versus the things that you would like to aspire to and then getting them tested out in you know in the, in the market where they would emerge spontaneously and the people react to them in certain ways is a is, is a daunting challenge but the best way to tackle it is to begin with it and that's what you're doing and that's what it ultimately comes down to and that's i think why, why this is really I, I believe so inspiring and i think you know the the um on the one hand, it can be this daunting and it can be, you can think of it as being such a difficult thing. On the other hand, there is an element of, uh, if, if you get the premise of free markets and uh, economic freedom, there is a, the, there's an underlying simplicity that makes your job much simpler. You know, if you were a, if you were a, a, a socialist central planner, you would, you know, ahead of you is you need to know every single job out there and every single product and set the price and set the salary and set the wage and set the conditions and basically design every entrepreneurial plan for everybody in society. And that's, of course, impossible. But if you understand what markets are, it's kind of like a cheat code to figuring out how a market economy works or to 
to having a functioning society because you know ultimately there's that cheat code which is as let them let, let the people themselves figure out what they want and that's what it ultimately comes down to as long as it's as long as the sovereignty is individual that eliminates it depends on how you think about it and how far you're willing to take it, it eliminates somewhere between 90 and 99% or yeah. maybe 99.99% of yeah. the jobs of uh, the legal framework and the kind of governing structure of the society because it just becomes much easier and this is this is kind of the secret to being a successful government or a successful king is to just leave people alone it's a, it's it's a joke in many countries uh, everywhere people think People make this joke thinking that it's unique to their government. I know I've, I've heard <laughs> Indians make this joke. I've heard all kinds of Europeans make this joke, Mexicans, and they, and they all think it's so unique to them, but it's really universal. The, the joke is that, you know, the economy grows when the government is asleep. And it's very true. Like to the extent that there is an economic activity taking place, it's because people have found a way around the government in most countries in the world. And so the, like the, the, the really difficult thing for a government to get, if I had the ear of a king, I tell him, you know, the cheat code is just let people do whatever they want. And, um, you know, obviously, as long as they maintain, they respect each other's property rights and then deal with each other consensually, then whatever emerges from that is going to be satisfactory for everyone. Absolutely. I mean, for me, I, I think about it. I don't know where you stand with uh, a concept like the Montessori education, you know, like Montessori classroom, you know, this whole concept of a prepared environment, right? So you have the rules. I mean, you have a few of the rules and we know what they are. And, um, you, you know, basically within this prepared environment, let the child be free be free to discover at his or her own pace and uh, do what they need to do. And some of the kids will start reading on their four, others might not want to read or get there until they're eight or whatever, but it is, this is going to happen. So for me, the free markets are, are, are that. And that's why I think it was such a, this is why, especially I have such great respect out of all the economists. I have such great respect for the Austrian economy, economists, because they're the ones who actually put their fingers on the, on the entrepreneur and the importance of the entrepreneur and what needs, uh, what the entrepreneur needs. So I'm out of all the economists, that's when people ask me, why do you, why are we always, always talking about the, you know, Austrian economists? And I'm like, because for me, they're the ones who actually sold the entrepreneur and, and why the entrepreneur is important. Yeah, that's that's really the fundamental difference. The rest of the economists, they look at the economic question from the perspective of a central planner, from the yeah. perspective of a benevolent, omniscient, omnipotent person in a position of authority. I mean, this is the motivating framework for all macroeconomics and even microeconomics questions in an economy. It's always from the perspective of we need to deliver policy relevant policy actionable conclusions. You know, that's, that's what macroeconomics is about. That's what all modern economics is about. What should the government do? What should the policymakers do? What should the lenders and the donors do? This is the motivation yeah. of all the questions. Yeah. And the Austrians, <laughs> that's not a part of the analysis. I mean, the only conclusion of that analysis is that these people should just go and get real jobs. Okay. And find somebody who'll pay them for a market transaction. You know, go and produce things that people will pay for willingly, and that's what they should do. And that's it. That's that's the job of the central planners to go get an actual job. 
and they don't <laughs> they don't have anything more elaborate and that's what makes everybody else dismiss them because no no that's when they don't want to hear though. exactly that's, what, that's the last but if you, you don't want to get a real job the whole reason you're in government is they don't, you don't hear want that. to have a real job if you could do a real job you wouldn't be in a government you'd be out there exactly you know <laughs> serving people but that's that's exactly. what it is that's what the austrians have exactly. to say and i think if we're going to end this with a positive note i think Ultimately, in, in the grand scheme of things, I think we're coming to a point where I don't think that the fiat system can continuously support this growing cancer of governments all over the world. I think the last couple of years, you know, inflation is going up a lot and in so many places are having hyperinflation and so many places are getting much more and more uh, high inflation rates. And uh, that's translating into significant fiscal and monetary pressure on government. So even with the access to the currency and even with their ability to destroy the currency, as long as the currency is still functional, even though they're printing it and using it, their ability to offer actual real economic uh, value and goods and services to government employees is becoming weaker and weaker, I believe, in real terms. Yeah. Because I just think... You know, these are bloated bureaucracies and, you know, they're very inefficient and they continue to accumulate more and more liabilities. And eventually, you know, you get to a situation where you, when you have the hyperinflation that people who are dependent on the government are devastated. But then beyond that, after that, there has to be a kind of a recovery in a sense in that, well, look, you know, you can shout until you're blue in the face for the government to give you more money. All that they're going to do is just print money and give it to you. And that's just going to devalue yeah. the money more. Like, that's it. This is, you, you, you're, you're, um, you've reached the ends of this. Like, it's a blown tire. It's, it's a punctured tire. And no matter how much air you blow into it, it's going to continue to, it's, it's not going to fill up. So you're not going to be able to, I think more and more government employees all over the world and more and more members of the bureaucracy are coming to this experience that it's not working. We're, we're being told we're getting paid in constantly devaluing money and our bonds are not worth it. And if we want to get the life that we want, we need to start thinking about uh, getting real jobs. I think this is just going to become more and more common worldwide because it's just the nature of the fiat Ponzi that it's not very sustainable. It, it can be sustained for a while, but not forever. No, not forever. And I, I agree with you that we might have come to the end um to, to the end of, of it, I don't know how much more runway we have. I think within the next five, you know, maybe 10 years, I don't know, it's going to, this whole thing is probably going to collapse. But you know, the good news, I mean, for me, it's, you know, creative destruction sometimes, you know, is needed. So I'm, 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 I'm pessimistic. I'm pessimistic in the short, in the short term, but very optimist in the long term. And in the end, all that matters is the long term. So in the meantime, the goal is to try and prepare people as much as possible. That's why I'm so glad that something like Bitcoin was created when it was created. People make fun of us all they want. It doesn't matter, you know, like how, how long it's taken. But, uh, you know, we, some of us long, work for the long game. And so I'm just glad that alternatives have been in the building. And so that this way we're going to lose, you know, when the, as things collapse, Hopefully we try to salvage as many people, as many situations as possible, you know, on our way to, to recovery. And I, and I do think, I do think something really, really strong and sustainable will be built from the ashes of all of this. So for me, that's what I decide to look at. You know, sometimes you don't make um, an omelet without breaking eggs. Uh, we didn't have to do this. Uh, we didn't have to break these eggs necessarily, but we all inherited these 
states that we have inherited and we have to do with it. But uh, the good news is we've not been waiting around for this. It's, it's, it's going to happen. So short-term pessimistic, but long-term very optimistic, very optimistic. And um, yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, Magat, this has been uh, absolutely amazing and fascinating and inspiring. And I really wish you all the best with all of your plans. I think we agree on uh, so much. And I think we have such similar worldviews. This has been uh, wonderful for me because, you know, obviously everybody likes to enjoy agreeing with people, especially when you're getting <laughs> shouted at all day and being oh. told that you just, <laughs> you're wrong about everything. So it's fine. It's, it's, it's nice when I find somebody uh, who clicks on this. So thank you so much for your time and really best of luck on everything. Thank you. Thank you, Safe. And I look forward to your new book and it's, it's been very fun for me. I never thought that I would get to talk with you. So I'm very appreciative of you. <laughs> Pleasure's all mine. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay. Cheers. Bye-bye.